and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Project Egg Show. I'm your host, Ben Gothard, and today we have the honor of speaking with Tay He Nam. How are you doing today, Tay? Very good, Ben. Looking really forward to uh, being on your show here. Well, I am so uh, glad that you could carve out the time for this. I'm very appreciative because I really wanted to ask you, uh, what is your story? Sure. In, in my case, uh, uh, I was actually born in Korea, and we immigrated to the United States when I was five years old. And then uh, um, I went to college and wanted to be a programmer and go to business school. And my father, who was a medical school professor in Korea, wanted me to go be MD-PhD. And uh, we compromised on law school. He felt I needed a professional degree. Uh, I didn't know anything about law at the time. I thought tort was something you ate. I didn't know it was a field of law. The <laughs> Supreme Court cases like Brown versus School Board of Education, I had no idea what it was all about. I was a, a hardcore math major, math science major. And so law was like a learning a foreign language, but uh, um, it was great. And then with that, I went to work with tech firms. So I came out to Silicon Valley and I've been here first working as a lawyer, working with uh, several hundred startups and then later on uh, have been a VC for the last 20 years. Wow. What really attracted you? Well, actually, let me let me step back even, even a little bit more. Um, when you moved at such a young age, how did that impact your identity? How did that, how did that change the game for you and, and um, impact your life? Well, I would say the most direct impact was uh, I almost flunked kindergarten. Because you know I'm starting school, but I can't speak the language. <laughs> I didn't know any English, and so uh, that 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 had an impact. But uh, um, but overall, I would say you know I really enjoyed growing up in St. Louis and uh, um, um, learning uh, you know how to be successful in St. Louis and in America. Was it was it something that was difficult for you um, picking up? you know, a new language and, and um, kind of having ties to, to different cultures and, um, you know, really growing up like that. I mean, was that something where it was more of a struggle or was that just an interesting uh, extra flavor that you had growing up? Well, I, I think, you know, growing up, even if you grow up in your hometown that your family is for decades, I think the whole process of growing up it means you have struggles. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, uh, growing up by definition means you have struggles. Um, and, and so um, since I didn't have context, like I hadn't grown up before, I didn't know whether the struggles were just tied to growing up or the fact that I'm an immigrant or all that, or just everything sort of meshed together. Um, so didn't really look at it that way. I, I, I guess the, the, the biggest difference is, is that, uh, um, you know, growing up in St. Louis, I didn't know very many Koreans. So it was sort of insular amongst uh, uh, like my family and some family friends. And then going off to college and seeing so many Koreans actually was culture shock, you know. <laughs> I, I wasn't used to so many Koreans. And uh, um, I would say one specific impact of that is that I didn't know that I was actually mispronouncing my own name until I was a senior in high school. Wow. And, and that's because in Korean culture, at least amongst the family, you rarely get called by your first name. 
I would get basically called as like second son or things like that because I have an older brother. So it, it would be all sort of positional. And so it was only when I was a senior in high school and I was talking to a high school friend of mine that uh, was leaving a message. And, and then she goes, that's not how you pronounce your name. So when he asked me how to pronounce my name, you know, I, I, I just was thankful because I myself was mispronouncing my own. Wow. What a, what a story. What a story. It is embarrassing, but, you know, that's part of growing up and, and as you say, struggles and all. Well, hey, I, I'd love to share an embarrassing story with you, too, because, you know, I have plenty of those that, you know, the um, those little cheese, the little cheese things where it's wrapped in the red uh, wax. You have yes. to, like, take the yes. wax off. OK, well, growing up um, when I was when I was in high school. I didn't know that the red was wax. I thought that was just another piece of the cheese. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so I was just yeah. eating that for <laughs> for a while. Right. And somebody saw me one time. They're like, "Dude, what what are you doing?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know. I'm just eating this cheese." And they're like, "It's not the cheese." So I finally removed the wax, and then I tasted. It. I was like, "You know, this cheese is actually not that bad." <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the fun. Oh. Um, so, so anyways, when, when you were getting into, uh, into your college years and, and really developing your interests and your passions, what was the, the draw to, uh, to, to math and science? Why was that such a pull for you? Um, you know, uh, m math, uh, just really became, was something that was easy for me. And so it just sort of became a, a way of thinking when I say math in particular, like modeling. And so I was an applied math major in college. And so then I would just take that and apply it to whether it's economics, physics, chemistry, and even to, you know, playing games, all that. And even applied it to dating in college, which turned out to be a mistake. So I was with a bunch of roommates, which we were all very diverse, you know, different ethnic religious backgrounds but we shared one commonality that uh, because we were all math major applied math majors i think that inhibited our social life you know it causes you to overthink versus just do things you know yeah and you know it seems like growing up i mean i, I don't know about you but i i overthought a lot of things growing up so i i can't imagine also having you know a this this intense deep knowledge in in applied mathematics and also bringing that to the to yeah the that table. framework of building models and all that you know applied to social settings is actually the worst thing to do <laughs> so so when you were when you were moving through college and and uh you made the decision to to go to law uh mm -hmm. or to go into law rather um do you feel like that math and science background actually helped you be more creative or helped did, did that aid you to come differently to the to the to a problem or to approach it in a different way or uh, was it just like you have this skill set now you're adding another one? Oh I, I think once I learned uh, uh, the vocabulary of law and all the history and so forth the uh, uh, the applied math background was extremely helpful because uh, it, it basically what it does is it's about how to build mathematical models, you know, 
whether it's a mathematical model first of like chemistry or, or physics or and you apply it to law. And uh, I actually am doing the same sort of concept and applying it to investing is what I've been doing for the last 20 years. But so in my case, you know, once I have an understanding, like a framework of why things are going the way it is and sort of being able to predict what will happen, it just makes things easier. I'm fascinated by that. And, and I was actually coming to this question, um, but how do you apply these these models or, or at least that approach, that framework to investing? I mean that that to me is is phenomenally fascinating, and I, and I would love to hear your your approach to that. Sure. So the first thing is is that uh, uh, so I'm a, a a venture capital investor that invests in early stage, uh, primarily software companies, B two B software companies, and uh, and so we invest in the company fairly early. Um, and the way we succeed is by the company succeeding and the price per share of the stock going up considerably. It's not like we get like consulting fees or anything else from the company. So we, we're really focused on shareholder wealth creation. You know, that, that's how we're, we're compensated. So the question then becomes is how do you take this really young startup that we invested in or uh, about to get started and build it into a very successful company that has a lot of shareholder value. And it, it turns out that it has a lot of uh, analogy to like raising a child. You know, it's like giving birth to a, a, a child and then how to make it into a very successful adult. And, uh, um, and so when it comes to building a startup, what we see is that startups go through five very different stages. First is finding product market, I mean, I'm sorry, is founding the company. Where it's about selecting the right co-founders, building the right culture, the right vision, all that, the right founding team, basically. Um, and, and that's critical because uh, founder drama is what I see as the biggest cause of failure for any startup. Really? Yes. Can you go into that a little bit more? Because that seems like a huge point. Well, it's like when founders don't get along, you know, and then it's like watching a, a divorce in action. And we as the investors or the other employees are like children sort of watching this divorce in real time, which is pretty painful for all of us. So, um, but if you have a, a, a very stable, hardworking, committed founder team, then even if the company fails the first time, they can keep working at it. And we've had several examples of where it's achieved great success, even though the first couple of times it failed, the first few years they struggled and so forth. So having um, a really good founding team pays huge dividends, not just short-term, but long-term. And, and that's really the first stage is, you know, how do you pick the right co-founders? So that's the first stage. The second stage uh, for a B2B company is um, um, to find product market fit. And frankly, that's just coming out and having some happy customers. Um, and, and so you want customers which are paying, which are passionate and are active users of your product. But fundamentally, it means you've got some happy customers. Then the next thing is, is that uh, uh, what we see is, is that many companies then mistake from having, let's say, 10 happy customers and just say, by hiring a lot more sales reps, just by investing a lot more in sales and marketing, you can immediately go from 10 to 1,000 customers. 
you know, because you've got 10, they're really happy and exciting. So you should easily go from 10 to a thousand. You just hire some people, you know, turn to crank, spend money and you immediately scale. And, and what we found is, is that uh, it doesn't work that way. You know, just because you have happy customers doesn't mean that you are ready for scale. Instead, um, after you find product market fit, it's also critical that you find what we call go-to-market fit. And that's a new term that we came up with. And what that is, is really is unlocking the growth formula. So the first is having happy customers, but you know, just because you have happy customers doesn't mean you can get a lot more of them. And so the second, the go-to-market fit then is about unlocking that growth formula, which we call go-to-market fit. And we've come out with a three-step path on how to find go-to-market fit. And so once you have that growth formula, then you're really ready to scale. And so that's when you start scaling. And you know you have that growth formula from a financial perspective when you have like an Excel spreadsheet and you say, I invest X dollars in sales and marketing and I'll get Y dollars in new billings and, and it works. Emotionally, the way it feels like is uh, uh, the difference between paddling and surfing. You know, paddling is so much energy you burn to go a fairly short distance. Whereas when you're surfing and you catch the wave, you can burn relatively little energy and you go far and you feel that momentum. You feel that wave behind you. And so I love that's, that analogy. Yeah. So that's the real difference. That's when you know you can feel it, that you have go to market fit is when you catch that wave. And then we then enter the fourth stage of the company journey, and that is, uh, we say, accelerating the category leader. Because, you know, in this new world with globalization, technology, all that, um, it's really become a winner-take-all world. You know, in each category, there's one winner that sort of dominates. And so then it's about you've caught the wave. That means others have caught the wave, too and others have seen you catch the wave, so they're jumping in. And so then how do you really own the wave, you know, own and become the category leader? And that's like a 50 to $100 million company now. And then the last stage is, uh, we say, is how do you transcend your category and become an industry leader of multiple categories? So we define it as a five-step journey and really focusing on this of how to find go-to-market fit because that, uh, Basically, for us as investors, there's a distinction between companies that generally lose money and make money. So we're highly motivated to find and help companies cross that chasm. Wow. So I'm, I'm so curious about this analogy. There were two that you used that I really want to dig into. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, I, I want to thank you for sharing that because from the entrepreneur's perspective, to be able to understand you know, how, how you look at it and, you know, being on, being a very integral piece of that and like hearing that is so valuable. So thank you. For and, sharing. and what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide a framework. So if you have like a framework of how your life is going to change and be able to anticipate changes, it should help people in their careers and in their, and their companies. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the first, um, analogy I want to dig into is catching the wave versus paddling. Mm -hmm. And what I'm really curious about is what that actually 
does feel like because I can picture it logically in my head, but the the idea of okay, well, what what does it actually feel like? What does it look like? What does it smell like? Uh, what is what is it? How does that actually manifest itself when you're running a company and and building something? What does catching the wave look like? Because I feel like very, very few entrepreneurs ever really catch that wave. Most are just stuck in continuous paddling. So right. how do you know that, that when you're in that sweet spot and you've caught the wave? When you uh, uh, catch the wave, what you feel is this, you feel momentum. You feel like things are happening for you, even though you're not as like struggling as before. Um, in particular for B2B companies, the way you see it is you're just getting a lot of leads. You go from having struggling to get leads, calling friends for referrals, all that, and then all of a sudden leads are just pounding on your door. So that's what you see. Um, like in your case, you know, as you're building you know, your community, uh, you're working on getting more and more you know, like daily active users on your community right? And you're trying this, you're working hard doing this, all these things. And, you know, what happens, let's, let's say something happens and there's something and you just go viral. And the users just start growing exponentially. So that's amazing. what happens is, is that you want is uh, uh, how do you go from, uh, as we say, paddling to surfing? And to go surfing, you need to do three things. You need to catch the wave, as we're talking about, then, then be able to ride the wave, and then to have the right surfboard. So you need those three things. Then, then you, with that, you can really start surfing the wave and then on path to being a very successful company. So is the idea to be positioning yourself like constantly positioning repositioning repositioning to try to catch the next wave or are you going after the same wave or it does it just kind of happen randomly from from the other steps in the framework like how well, do you actually catch it yeah i think that's a, a the the key question is how do you catch a wave right and then later on you know some companies have caught the wave and later on they have to recatch the next wave so it's about how do you catch the wave? And to be honest, most of the companies that we see catch the wave, they do it out of luck. Mm. You know, they worked hard at it, don't get me wrong, but uh, 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 part of it was just right place at the right time. And you can see that because it, they have, they struggled to find, refine, you know, recatch the wave later on for new products or as the company grows. So the way we think, uh, I, I, I've, what we've come up with is sort of how to catch the wave is really is to, you know, identifying the wave is relatively easy, you know, in terms of what's the next big thing, you know, it could be like people talk about AR, it could be VR, you know, it could be cloud, you know, cyber. So there are a lot of waves that are coming. And what you can see is you see this wave and you'll see a picture of like four surfers, one who's caught it, three that are so close, but they didn't quite catch the wave. And so is, you see that with startups, that you see this wave, one catches it, the other three don't, even though they're just so, so close. And the, the main re way we, I think to catch the wave is to 
identify uh, the urgent pain. The urgent pain is simply answers the question for a customer, why buy now? Not three months from now, not six months from now, not a year from now, but why buy now? It's like in your case, it'll be like on a on your podcast, it's like if users feel like they have to listen right now, then you create that urgency and that need. So it's about identifying uh, uh, that urgent pain. And what makes it really hard is, is that uh, the urgent pain many times is different from the founding idea. Ah. Because, and, and the founding idea is important because that's why people quit their jobs, you know, uh, uh, took this huge risk to start the company because they have this idea. This founding idea is to address a target pain point for a target set of customers. That's the essence and B2B of a founding idea. And, and so that's what, every, that's what the person is, or the team is passionately focused on. And everyone says focus, focus, focus. So they're focused on this founding idea. But what customers really want today, I mean, a year from now, five years from now, they may want the founding idea, but they want today is, is different. So I'll give you an example. So uh, of a company that uh, I work closely with, uh, Mobile Iron. It's a company that we helped, uh, you know, we incubated and uh, um, um, built and is now a public company. The, the founding idea was uh, how to manage and secure heterogeneous smartphones. You know, this is when we had Windows, we had Symbian, we had all these different, and the iPhone was coming out. And so the idea was is how to make a great product that could manage and secure all these different types of smartphones. Sounds like a great vision. You can see the wave, smartphones are coming. It's gonna be adopted by the enterprise. You have to manage and secure it. That, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that the urgent pain was simply managing securing iPhones for executives. So within that broad wave of you know, heterogeneous smartphones, all that, what people wanted was simply at that point, what was urgent was executives, especially CEOs, bought an iPhone for Christmas, brought into work, told IT, I want to switch my BlackBerry to an iPhone to do my email, that kind of stuff. The IT department will say, well, we don't support iPhones. So you got to stick with your BlackBerry. And the CEO would say, well, that's an unacceptable answer. <laughs> and so with that, you know, IT had an urgent pain to making sure CEOs and other executives could work with their iPhones for email and that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean, by the way, that uh, they were going to deploy this for all 50,000 or 100,000 employees, but there was that urgent pain to at least address the 50. And so the company pivoted to focus on this urgent pain. Um, but at the end of the day, what makes it hard for the founders is that in a way it's like committing heresy. Right. Because you know, founding a company is such a passionate, such a, a experience that you have this founding idea and to go against your founding idea to something else is, is very tough to do. It really seems like you have to take 
like almost take yourself out of the equation and almost get out of your own way and not be so focused on that, uh, you know, on that one tree or, or, or that, the, you know, not be so focused on that one thing that you miss the, you miss the wave or, you know, you miss the, the, the relevant right. thing over here. You, you have to be able to have empathy with customers. Mm. And so it's, so one thing that's really helpful is, is in these kind of st early startups is that as the founder CEO, you're meeting with potential customers. You obviously pitch the founding idea because that's it. And what's good is don't spend a hundred percent of the meeting on the founding idea. You know, spend 20 or 30% of the meeting then about the stuff around the founding idea and see what uh, excites uh, the potential customer. That's interesting. So you're almost hedging your bet by giving them kind of like a, like a choose your own adventure type of. Well, uh, hedging, I, I use a different word. I would say cast a wider net mm. because it could be that, I mean, in a way you're hedging, but really what you're trying to do is you have this founding idea and just cast a, a wider net as you get data back from the customers. So because something adjacent could be what is the urgent pain. Right. And so when you target the urgent pain, that's how you catch the wave. That's how you get the leads because there's such an urgent pain, they have to take action. Have you ever built a company that you, you just went straight to the customers and you're like, hey, what pain, what pain do you have? And then and then you you got their answers and then you just built a you built the the company around that and almost let the customer build build or tell you what the need is directly. We did something close to that. So what I found is that if you go with just a blank slate, like you described, you don't get very good feedback. Mm -hmm. because they don't really respect you uh, and they think it's just a waste of time. If you go in with uh, something that is really exciting, like it could be a great new technology like what AI is right now, or uh, uh, go in with something that really does look exciting uh, and so forth, then they'll start giving you good feedback. Hmm. So one company that I was the founding CEO of, I'll give you an example, Airspace. Um, so the founding idea in that case was uh, um, to have one uh, wireless infrastructure in the enterprise that does both cellular and Wi-Fi. Hmm. You know, this was when Wi-Fi was starting to come out and we thought, Hey, you know, in the office, wouldn't you be nice to have one infrastructure so you have good Wi-Fi and you have good cellular coverage, right? It sounds yeah. great. It, it would be, and so we architected and hired a team of eight people, all this, and put this together and started talking with potential customers. And as we were talking to customers, uh, what we realized is, is that uh, all they want is Wi-Fi. They don't want the cellular as well. And the, and it turns out the, the reason for it as well is that cellular is spectrum, which is owned by the, the carriers. 
So you can't really do anything uh, unless the carriers approve it because they own the spectrum. Whereas Wi-Fi is based on uh, open spectrum. And so anyone can do anything with it. And, and so as we would talk to customers and uh, all that, we would get feedback that what they really wanted was uh, enterprise grade Wi-Fi. And so we had to pivot the company, shrink it, and uh, uh, went from the founding idea I described, which is a grander. I, founding ideas are always grander <laughs> than the urgent pain. But the urgent pain is what they buy today. So it really answers the question, you know, why buy today? Not three months from now, not a year from now, not five years from now, but today. And if you can answer that, um, then you're addressing an urgent pain. And that's the first step to catch the wave. I mean, you need to do other things to be able to ride the wave and have the right surfboard. But if you don't catch it, you don't begin the journey. Have you ever had a situation, and this is fascinating, by the way, have you ever had a situation uh, where you've pre-sold customers mm -hmm. to, an, to an idea? How did you, how did you structure that because if they're putting up their money now for the promise of something later, you know, that there's just a little bit of tension there inherent in that sort of arrangement. So how did you actually structure it? Well, what happens is that uh, uh, <clears throat> you have to have a customer that has this urgent pain and they can't go and buy it elsewhere right now. They really want this. Uh, but they can't go out and buy a product or get a consultant or someone to solve their urgent thing. And then they meet you and you have some key technology or some uh, team or something that the person believes that you, makes you special and believes that, you know, by working with you, you will solve that urgent pain much faster than waiting for others. It really just comes down to that is, uh, you know, the severity of the urgent pain and the alternatives and confidence that you can solve it. Wow. So it's about figuring out something that the, the pain is there. They have that extremely urgent pain and they need it today. And there's nothing that they can spend that money on right now or no good alternative. Right. And you have evidence to support the, the idea that you are the, the best potential bet they have to solve this pain as quickly as possible by investing in you early on. Yeah, yeah. as a development contract or pre-buying it, you know, those are all different methods. But at the end of the day, you know, the, there has to be the motivation. Right, right, right. So when it comes to this, this philosophy of identifying this urgent pain, it seems like you had to come to this conclusion somehow. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, when well, did that? Well, that's why I, I say that uh, the way to find the urgent pain, at the end of the day, urgent pain is not determined by you, me, the investors or the board, it's determined by the customers, right? Right. And so the best way is you gotta get data from the customers. And so by casting a wider net, uh, means that you're collecting data from the customers. Well, I, I was curious about when you personally developed this this ideology or this approach, because I'm sure there were some 
series of events that that led to this? Uh, yes, uh, too many failed investments. <laughs> it's as simple <laughs> as that. You know, I, I, uh, after every, as I'm working on every investment or with founders or CEOs, you know, uh, since I was an applied math major, I mentioned, you know, like to make models, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of modeling and figuring out patterns of success and patterns of failure, whether it's on the, the company journey or the people journey, you know. Wow. So on your own journey, it, it, and I'm, I ask this because I'm of the belief that every day we have to get better and we have to improve and we have to work on ourselves. And the extent to which we can achieve professionally is – really capped by the extent to which we can grow as people mm-hmm. um so first of all is that something that you subscribe to also absolutely um, and that we have especially because the world is so competitive as it becomes more global absolutely uh and and so then my question is how do you go about bettering yourself how do you go about educating yourself and improving yourself and how have you done it over time right so um I, for me, it's a combination of three things. You know, first, I, I really try to have an open mind and and watch people. You know, talk to people, learn from people, uh, learn like what superpower each person may have, and and how they exercise that superpower. So, really trying to observe and learn. The second is, is that uh, it goes back to then the modeling is then I, I try to then figure out what is that sort of key pattern uh, that, uh, uh, that I need to then apply. And then that comes down to then executing and just continually working on it. So I'll give you an example of something very specific. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, I, um, being a, a Korean immigrant with parents that pushed you very hard in education. Um, you know, I did well in school and would do well in math and science and then in college and then law, I was in law school. I started working and, and I realized that there's a huge difference between doing well in school and tests and working and that there's a, a fundamental skill that in working that's critical that was never taught to me, which is how to sell. Mm-hmm. You know, when I say sell, it doesn't mean it doesn't have to be just selling like a hamburger or something, but it could be selling your vision, selling yourself. You know, this whole idea of, of how to sell was something that was really never taught to me in a traditional sort of Asian style immigrant education. And uh, uh, it, it was something that I had to learn. Um, and uh, uh, I would say learning it turned out to be extremely critical to, you know, whatever uh, I do. Because if you can't sell, then you can't persuade someone that this is the, the right thing to do. And so I can give you some examples of how I uh, uh, learned that, if you wish. Yeah, yeah. Um, so first thing is by observing, right? So. I was sharing an office with uh, uh, another, so we were both first year attorneys, just came out of law school. I was 25, I looked like I was 16. And then the other person, um, he went to law school a little bit later. So he looked like he was about 35, even though he was about 30. And he just had this sort of 
confident demeanor. I mean, he just looked very mature and stately and so forth. So clients would meet both of us. Um, and when clients met me, I think they all thought, what does this person know? And when the client met him, they go, oh, he looks like a partner, you know? <laughs> so immediately on first impression, you know, I, I realized that, you know, he had this huge advantage of clients because clients believed in him while clients did not believe in me. Um, and, and so, so that was the thing is I realized that he could sell very, gain that confidence. And so as a result succeeded, whereas in my case, because of just how I acted, my youth and everything, I, I created the exact opposite impression. And so, um, the way it manifested itself was is that uh, uh, I was working with this client at that time, probably about my age, but you know now, <laughs> but uh, I, I was 25, and uh, I would we were negotiating this deal, and I said this structure is not going to work. We should do it this way, not the traditional way, because of all these problems. And he looked at me and said, "You know, you're a young flake. You don't know what you're doing. Just shut up and take notes." Um, and, you know, I could sort of say, you know, he, he's paying for my legal time, right? So he's right. the client, I, I'm the attorney, and he's probably thinking, why did they have send this junior attorney to work with me versus a partner or some senior associate? So I could see, it, you know, why he would be frustrated. Um, but I was right. The structure didn't work, so the deal didn't happen, okay? Similar kind of situation, um, but with a different client, but the same, you know, expectation, all that. This time, what I did is instead of sort of saying it's not going to work, I said, well, how do we handle this case? And he looked at it and he goes, you know, that's a problem. And then you go, how do you handle this? So after about 20 minutes, this the group is getting very frustrated because the normal way of doing things is not going to work, right? So right. they're now poised. They all feel very frustrated. Um, and, and so at that point, I said, well, what if we do it this way? And they go, wow, you must be a boy genius. So <laughs> I went from a young flake to a boy genius just on how I presented the proposal. That's amazing. You know, how it's set it up and then present it. So it seems like instead of trying to just deliver it, you waited for the right time that and planted the yeah, yeah you planted the seed. Prepared for the answer is is what I'm saying. It's because uh, you know because of the fact that I I look so young, acted so young, I couldn't just immediately exude that confidence, right, and have people believe me just because of the fact of my title or or, or demeanor, whatever. So got the group prepared and desperate, and then presented. That's brilliant. So that's that's the observe part, and then applying it, learning it. You know, I failed the first time. You know, I keep testing it, and then then ultimately figure out what works. That's awesome. So now that you've been on this journey for you know for for your whole life, and and yeah. you know, clearly this path has led you to where you are now. Um, what questions do you still have about yourself? Well, um, 
quite a, a, a lot because, you know, it's about, you know, as you pointed out, this quest for continual improvement. And, and so, you know, as the world is changing, um, how to improve and frankly, how to still be relevant and useful and not obsolete. Because uh, the way the world is changing, uh, it, it's uh, what works well today is going to fail tomorrow and, and so forth. So it's, uh, it's a continual challenge. So does that mean challenging your existing assumptions yes. based on reading or talking to other people or uh, working with mentors? Like what's the actual tactical method that you use to challenge those beliefs to first of all dig them up because i don't think i don't think anybody really understands what their limiting beliefs are or else we would know about them so they wouldn't be limiting beliefs right right so i i'd say the key is really is to talk and observe it is uh, uh talk to people in different parts of the world different parts of community and um and, and this is where um, in, in our firm, one core value we have is the importance of bridging diverse communities. So it's diversity by itself is nice, but it's not. But when you bridge diverse communities, the bridging is how you see the blind spots, you know, how you see change, you know, happening in different parts of the world with different technologies, all that. So you don't develop the myopia coming from just one place. In our case, like Silicon Valley, but you know, otherwise you you can just it becomes like inside baseball and and limiting, and then you become blindsided by something else happening somewhere else in the world. So moving in in the you know the the industry uh, and seeing all the things that you see on a, on an everyday basis where do you see the future of technology going where do you see uh, you know in the next 50 100 500 years where do you see us going from a technological perspective technology is all about uh, uh, making humans better and uh, uh, and providing entertainment is how I look at it. You know, fun and better is the, the two. Better is primarily more for the, the B2B side and fun on the, the, the B2C side. And, uh, and one area that I'm really fascinated by is augmented reality. And so, um, by augmented reality, I mean something added to uh, like my camera, like the, what Google Glass was an early version of, but we're in the future, so that I have the full power of technology and the internet right here as a display on my glass that I can see all the time. So uh, you probably use LinkedIn, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine like you go to an event with your glass and your glass can identify the people. And then in addition to seeing the person, you have their LinkedIn profile right below. That's so awesome. that would be an example of how technology becomes embedded with our human experience. And so just like, uh, you know, we went from personal computers to mobile computing, and now we do so much more with our smartphone than just our laptops. 
imagine with AR glasses that that becomes a new display and how we communicate with uh, the network rather than just with a handheld device. So I, I believe that the 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 law of nature of you know for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I believe that happens a lot with progress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for for better or for worse. What do you see as kind of the other side of you know as we're moving forward there and we're getting more connected to the network? What do you see as that equal and opposite reaction um, as a result so I, of that. Yeah, so I see two big uh, challenges from a society standpoint. Uh, uh, one is just the lack of confidentiality and privacy. Mm. So if uh, if everyone knows everyone else's genetic code and what diseases you may have, health issues, all that, then uh, you, you, that would be a, a that's going to become a huge problem, and then uh, the the second is, is uh, um, the the challenge of uh, of just uh, uh, AI becoming so good that how, how do you still make it uh, uh, beneficial for all of us as humans rather than just a few select people. Um, like in a way, China is using AI to build like a, a social score for every person in China. Wow. You know, so, you know, it's a tool that could be misused as well as well used. So. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you very, very much, uh, Tay, for, for your time and, uh, and, and for sharing uh, sharing this time with me and in, in, uh, discussing these things. So I'm very grateful. Uh, I want to be very respectful of your time. So I just have one more question for you. Um, okay. Then we can wrap it up. Okay. Uh, so from, uh, from the perspective of a curious 24 year old, mm-hmm. um, I would really like to know what question should I be asking you that I just wouldn't think to ask? Wow, that is a, 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 a great question. Um, I, I would uh, ask uh, uh, in uh, whatever, you know, if you're pursuing a, a, a journey like in, in tech and all that, is, uh, you know, how can you find the right mentors to help you? You know, because uh, it's so much easier if you learn from others <laughs> and maybe save a mistake or two here than having it to learn everything yourself. And the, the natural temptation, at least with our kids around your age, is, is to do it themselves. So uh, how to not get others to do the work, but how to build a, a, a network uh, all around the world that uh, so that can help you in, in your own journey. And I'm surprised by how helpful people are, even if they don't know each other and they're from all different parts. Because I think with technology and all that globalization, people do feel connected. And, uh, and there's this great desire to sort of help others, like people have helped us. Well, I think case in point is the fact that you would share your valuable time on the show. 
No, I enjoyed it. This is very good. So, okay. Thank you very, very much. And uh, to everybody who's watching and listening, uh, I want to thank you all very, very much. Uh, the whole point of the show is to help you turn your dreams into reality. So, uh, you know, I hope you, you all really, really took in these lessons from Tay. Um, there were some gems there. So if, you know, if you didn't get all of them the first go around, I'd highly encourage you to go back a couple of times and listen because he's dropping uh, a lot of knowledge there. Um, so I'd highly encourage you all to do that. So thank you again, Tay. Thank you, everybody who's watching and listening. And I will see all of you on the very next episode. Take care now.